Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. I'll say it. This reading from Matthew is a weird way to start Advent. Let us pray. No. Uh, Over this next year, our lectionary readings in the Gospels will come primarily from the Gospel of Matthew. There'll be a few times during this year that we deviate from those readings, but not very much. So we're going to be hearing a lot about Matthew. And so as we begin this eternal year, this new year in our church's calendar, we are invited in the reading this morning to begin at the end. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but one of my first jobs in college was to read books for someone else and to write summaries. And very quickly, I realized that reading nonfiction and fiction was very different. I had primarily read fiction growing up. And so one of the pieces of advice the person whose job I had taken over said was, hey, always read in every book they give you the introduction and then the last chapter. And then when you get to each chapter, read the last page before you begin. And they said, this is going to help you know where the argument's going, to know where the story is going. And for the most part, they were right. And I think that some of the same wisdom that when they selected the lectionary text, they're giving to us. As we begin in the Gospel of Matthew, there are certain things Matthew is longing for us to see and understand. And so the lectionary begins at the end. And some of Jesus' final words to his friends before his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so I want to invite us this morning to look at this passage in three movements as we begin the Advent season. And the first movement is this, that Jesus is preparing his friends. Uh, This passage comes at the end of a much longer conversation that Jesus is with his friends. It shows up in Luke, in Luke 13, but most of us know it in John, from John chapter 13 to 17. He's preparing his followers, his friends, for a life without his physical presence. And he acknowledges three things for us throughout all of these conversations, and I think he acknowledges them for us as well. The first is that apprenticing themselves to him will put them in the midst of risk and danger and suffering. That to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus where Jesus goes. And as Trevor Hudson, who's a Methodist pastor in South Africa, in fact, he has a little book, and I brought it up here because sometimes I say little, and then I go, it's this little. And you're like, nah, I don't think that's little. We don't have the same definition. It is little. It is like fit in the back of your pocket. It's one of my favorite books for Advent called Pauses for Advent. And I would commend that to you. But Trevor Hudson says that if you are in a season where you're struggling to find the presence of God in the world, go to the suffering because that is where you will find God. Jesus is acknowledging to his friends that following him is gonna be anything but safe. The second thing he is acknowledging is that there's a certain kind of responsibility on them and on us to become a certain kind of person. That they will not only go where Jesus goes, but that they will become more and more the kind of person Jesus is. It's what Paul talks about in Galatians, not just the faith in Jesus, but the faith of Jesus. He also acknowledges that they will need grace for the pilgrimage and for the journey. 
Oftentimes we conflate grace and mercy, but even today in our opening collect, we're asking for grace to do something. Grace is the kind invasion of God's life into our lives. Jesus understands that his friends cannot faithfully navigate this life on their own and flourish, nor do they have to. Jesus is preparing his friends. And so one of the questions I think we need to sit with is why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus preparing his friends? Is it just he's a six on the Enneagram and wants to make sure they've thought through every single scenario for what might happen? My wife's a six, so this is the constant conversation her and I have. There are things I did not see coming that I'm so glad I have her deep wisdom in being able to go, are you sure you're ready? I'm like, I didn't even think about that, but thank you, it's a gift. No, it's more than just he wants them to be prepared. Jesus is doing this first and foremost because he loves these women and men deeply. He's prayed with them. He's prayed for them. He has shared meals with them. He has laughed and cried with them. He has sat with them in the midst of their misunderstandings and their questions. And he's watched, hasn't forced, but he's watched as slowly as they've slept alongside him and walked with him and pitched their tents next to him and prepared meals with him, laughed with him. He has watched as the reality of the kingdom made available begins to take root and blossom in their lives. He loves them. But also because he knows that reality is their best friend. It does no good for him to deny reality because reality Jesus knows, is where God always is. It's where God comes to us. It is where we find God and where we find ourselves and where we truly find one another. Right? The old saying, maybe it was just in the South, the Nile ain't just a river in Egypt, y'all. You ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that? No, no, a few. Got a few hands? Pecan pie and denial. The The two things served at every Southern Thanksgiving. But denial is not just a river in Egypt. It's a tactic of the enemy. It's a tactic of the enemy. It's a way in the kingdom of darkness that would keep us from God and thus keep us from the abundant life that Jesus desires for us to have here and now. Jesus inhabits reality. He doesn't explain, though you just sit with Jesus and his teachings. He doesn't explain away the most painful parts of existence. He acknowledges them and he acknowledges the longing for a different kind of life. And when we're ready, he offers us that different kind of life, that life doesn't have to be this way. This is at the heart of the Beatitudes of Jesus' parable of the weeds and the weed in Matthew 13, of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Why is Jesus doing this? He loves them. He, wants, he knows that reality is their best friend. But the third reason why Jesus is doing this is because he desires to orient their seeing to expect, to watch for God in unexpected places and in unexpected people. Jesus had an eye for God where no one else could see God. Jesus had an eye for the image of God in people that people had dismissed. He saw it everywhere. For him, the world was alive and radiant with the presence, the image, and the beauty of God. This Advent season invites us to recognize that there's a tension in this scene. 
This watchfulness you hear in our Isaiah reading and Romans and Psalm and in this gospel reading is less of a make sure your bags are packed, y'all. Do you believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because when he comes, you're not gonna see it coming. That's how most of us probably heard this gospel reading. It's not what Jesus is trying to do. It's less make sure your bags are packed and more don't miss Jesus when Jesus comes in places you've already disqualified in places you've said there's no way God could ever come here. And maybe this is someone else's story, but more than likely, and this is my own experience, in seasons when I've struggled to believe that God can come and arrive in the story of another, it's because I have struggled to believe God can come and arrive in my own story. Jesus here is not looking for perfect belief, but to hang out and expect God in unexpected places. Which brings us to the second movement. Jesus tells his friends to watch. Two of the central themes of Advent is watchfulness and hopefulness. But watchfulness for what? What are we watching for? Where Advent, the word Advent in the Latin means coming or arrival. Both that and this passage tell us we are watching for the many different comings and arrivals of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Henri Nouwen puts it this way, quote, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. He believed that life is Advent. Advent is a season that encapsulates all of what it means to be human. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord, unquote. But I can hear the objection because it's my own. Well, life doesn't feel like God's here, and it certainly at moments doesn't feel like God could ever be here. Because I think my, un my unspoken expectation, which I will say here, is that if God comes, everything will be instantly better. Jesus' first friends had the same assumption and he was gentle with them as he corrected the prevailing assumption of the day that the Messiah's arrival would instantaneously make everything better in exactly the way you want it. And because he was gentle with his friends then, I believe he'll be gentle with us now. Again, one of the central things that Matthew is doing in his gospel is giving us a kind of understanding of the world so that you and I can actually walk in the midst of it, live, flourish, follow Jesus in the midst of it. He's giving us an understanding of the kingdom of God that is now available to us here right now in the midst of our lived experiences. This is at the heart of what Matthew is doing in retelling the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew chapter five. Beloved, the Beatitudes are not a formula. They are not things to aspire to. Matthew 4 ends with the crowds coming to be healed by Jesus. And it is to those crowds that Jesus has spent the day with, his followers who have ministered alongside to him, kept everyone, uh, making sure everyone lined up and made their way to him and had plenty of time and plenty of space. It is to those that he looks out and says, blessed are you when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Blessed are you when you feel lost and when you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. That's verses three and four from the message. 
What kind of life does God come into? What conditions are right for the arrival of God? Lives of people who are at the end of their rope. Dallas Willard would often say that God's address is the end of your rope. God's address is the end of your rope. What kind of life does God come to? What kind of life is the kingdom made available to? Lives that are mourning because they've lost what is most dear to them. It's available to simple, quiet lives, lives marked by a soul hunger for significance, security, to be seen. It's available to lives that are overwhelmed by the needs of the world, lives looking for God in a world that is waiting. No wonder the psalmist in Psalm 139 will say, where can I go that you are not there? To the top of the rope, you're there. To the end of the rope, you are there. And so Jesus invites his friends to watch. But I think there's a particular posture that is needed in this kind of watching. And it's one that is unhurried. That's why I love the season of Advent, but it's also why it drives me a little crazy. Because the season of Advent actively resists my urge and my desire to rush straight into Christmas. I don't want to read passages about in a field with a friend and the friend disappears and I'm left behind. I don't want to open next Sunday with, John, with passages about John the Baptist, things that are just like, can we please just get to a baby in a manger, the three wise men, shepherds, angels in the, in the sky? And the season of Advent says yes, but we can't do it at the sake of reality. That that has come and we are longing for it to come again in the midst of a world that still feels so dark which is why we light candles, why we have candles available for you out in the lobby. You can use whatever candles. You don't like these candles? You can have different candles. It doesn't matter. Candles are simply a way to mark time, to not rush the light because, spoiler alert, the light cannot be rushed. But even in that unhurriedness, I think there's an invitation to ask Holy Spirit to help. Come, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. And this tells us, and that, well, this brings us into our third and final movement. Jesus tells his friends to be ready. The gospel reading this morning does not tell us what happens next, but it tells us to be ready. Everything is sudden. It's happening right in the midst of everyday life. And again, so much, have heard, uh, so much of us have probably heard this with someone trying to decode. Okay, well, a field, F-I-E-L-D, that's five letters, so it's probably May. And if we run to, okay, that's probably May 21st. Jesus is coming back on May 21st. Maybe you've never heard that before, and thanks be to God, you've never been exposed to that. But that's not, again, what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Jesus is trying to get us to name the reality of the tension that we long for Jesus to come. We long for resurrection. We long for the garden that's coming, and we just don't know when it will arrive. And so what do we do in the meantime? And Jesus tells his friends to be ready. And so, yes, great, but how? Yes, but how? In this chapter of Matthew, Jesus is going to, in other places, name the difficulties of life, heaviness of heart, fears, anxieties, wars, rumors of wars. Sounds familiar? 
It's as true then as it is now. And in Luke's account, in the same conversation, Jesus ends all of this with going, all right, but do not let your hearts be troubled. It's like, okay. Probably easy for you to say Jesus because you're God. But Jesus truly means it. Jesus doesn't say what he doesn't mean and he doesn't invite us into something that isn't possible. He really means that a life like this is possible. It's at the heart of Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer and the Magnificent. I think in some ways, Jesus got this posture toward the world from his mom. It's the life of the psalmist. It's the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, of John the Beloved, of Thomas, who had a lot of questions. But Jesus in Matthew 24 doesn't give an answer. He tells all of these stories, and then when they go, yeah, okay, sure, but how? He just tells another story because he's Jesus. And he goes on in Matthew 25 to tell the story of 10 bridesmaids. And in this story, the bridegroom is delayed and the wedding party, which is intended to be us, are waiting and watching. Five of these bridesmaids bring oil for their lamps. They represent the wise way of navigating a troubling world. And five do not. And they are intended to represent a foolish way of navigating a troubling world. And the theme is really one of oil. Who has brought oil? And oil in the scriptures represents the presence of God's life in our life. It's grace. It's the kind invasion of God's life into our life. God's very life, the energy and power and presence that is radically available to you and to me. God's life in our life in this story is not something that can be faked and it's not something that can be borrowed. The 10 who didn't bring, or the five who didn't bring oil ask for oil from the other five and they go, we can't give you any. They've been invited to wait. We've been invited to wait. One of the things that strikes me about this story in this season is that they were invited to the wedding, every single one of them, which means if that represents us and you've been invited to the wedding, then beloved, you are the beloved of God. You are the beloved. You've been invited to wait to watch and to get ready. You're the beloved of God. It is the most fundamental part of your identity. You're at the wedding. In spite of all the ways that we might look for our identity, Henri Nouwen suggests four different ways we look for it. One is I am what I do. The second is I am what others think about me. Third is I am what I have. The fourth is I am what I can contribute. And beloved, those, the answers to those questions are pretend identities. And pretend people have pretend relationship with God and with others. And believe me, I know because I am the first and foremost among you. And when you pretend, it leads to a life that is a roller coaster. You're either on a pedestal or you're in a pit. Jesus and his humanity needed to know who he was. He meets us, therefore, in our search for identity as one who knows that need. Who knows what it is to to need, to be named. Of course, when Jesus enters into the baptism waters, he enters in with all who are on the path away from union with God. And it is in those waters that he receives the words from the Father, you are my beloved. And Jesus doesn't go, okay, great, I don't ever need to hear it again. I've heard it once, don't tell me again. We see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He needs it again. The heavens open and the Father once again speaks, beloved. 
In fact, an essential part of Jesus' ministry was to help other people know that they were the beloved of God. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter eight, which means that I can tell you up here all day till I am blue in the face that you are the beloved of God, but only the Holy Spirit can bring it into the well water of your life that you actually believe it. I can't actually tell you who you are, friends. The Holy Spirit can. And what he tells us is that you are the beloved of God, and that is your most fundamental identity that goes beyond biology, it goes beyond gender, it goes beyond personality or Enneagram type. Jesus' starting place for his entire life was his belovedness. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, he'll need to hear it again. And I would argue that in his life, you see rhythms that communicate that he was constantly making space for more and more of God's sustaining, strengthening life, deepening into his own. In fact, Jesus intentionally rearranged his life with effort to create space for God's life to be deepened in his own life. He ate, he slept, he celebrated, he spent time with people, especially those he called friends. He spent time with enemies. He spent time with those who believed. He spent time with those who were confused. He worshiped in the synagogue regularly. He meditated on scripture. He sang the Psalms. He cared for others. He served others. He went into nature to be alone and pray. All of these are examples of spaces he created to open himself up for a deepening of God's life into his own life, which is why in John 15, he looks at us and says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Detach yourself from me and you wither. And of course, these are the ancient spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, soul training exercises, whatever you want to call them. There are ways we create space for the kind invasion of God's life in our life. Friends, actual life. Actual power, actual presence, actual energy from the heavenly realms that invade and come into our lives and strengthen us for what we face ahead. This is not some old dusty creed we're professing. It is an active dance in life we are invited into. So I leave you with this. I think the invitation as we begin this Advent season and the question I'm sitting with is how will I arrange my days to give space for more of God's life in my own? For me, it's reading three chapters of a gospel every day, slowing down for silence and solitude. It's marking time with my family and with you. It's festooning the magnificent. If you're like, what the heck is festooning? We get that from C.S. Lewis. It's a practice. It's a beautiful practice. Um, and you can find out more about that in our waiting and watching booklet in the back. Those are my answers. I can't answer it for you. But I can wonder with you what Holy Spirit might have for you. And so here's how I'm gonna close. I'm gonna invite us into silent listening to listen for the invitation of Holy Spirit. What might the invitation be? What might the prompting, the nudge be? And let's listen together and then I'll close us in prayer. Does that sound okay? Great, let's listen together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.